Welcome to Kid Tech, the podcast that goes behind the scenes, sometimes in front of the scenes, with um, the many people who are directly and indirectly shaping the kids' digital ecosystem. Today, I'm very fortunate to be speaking to Helen Dixon, who's the Data Protection Commissioner for Ireland. Welcome to the show. Hi, Dylan. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invite. Um, Helen, a lot of people are will understand what you do, but a larger number of people, I feel, won't. So can you explain, as Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner, what does your role involve? So I head up the National Data Protection Authority in Ireland. Uh, and what that means is that we are the designated supervisory authority, as it's referred to under the EU's Omnibus Data Protection Law, the General Data Protection Regulation, or the GDPR. So our, our specific role is, is essentially, and in a nutshell, to monitor the application of and to enforce the General Data Protection Regulation uh, and all of its principles and requirements and, uh, and obligations on data controllers. So of particular significance when you're talking about the Irish Data Protection Authority in the context of being a supervisory authority for the GDPR is the fact that the GDPR introduced uh, a very particular innovation in 2018 when it came into application. Uh, and that particular innovation is the one-stop shop so it allows multinationals to be supervised by one lead supervisory authority in the EU. Uh, and specifically that lead supervisory authority is in the member state of the EU where the multinational has what's called its main establishment to mm -hmm. the place of central administration. Uh, so for many reasons, an awful lot of uh, the world's biggest tech platforms, Google, Microsoft, Airbnb, Dropbox, Twitter, uh, have their main establishments in Ireland. And that means that my office, the Irish Data Protection Commission, is the lead supervisory authority for all of these multinationals. So when it comes to talking then about protecting children's data, we've got a very particular role that we want to pursue in this area. And, and I suppose for listeners, just to, to elaborate on, on, on the scale of the task that you have, if, if I'm correct, and I'm quoting from another source here, but um, your team currently has 23 live probes into the likes of Apple, Facebook, Google, Instagram, LinkedIn, Quantcast, Tinder, Twitter, Verizon Media, and WhatsApp, um, and obviously more beyond that. That sounds like an enormous amount of work for, I mean, one of the smallest countries in the EU? It, it is an enormous amount of work uh, and, and it's the way it's panned out in terms of uh, the location of multinationals in Ireland. They're in Ireland for many reasons, of course, uh, partly for tax reasons, but also very much because Ireland has, uh, I think, the youngest population in the EU and a very highly educated young and mobile workforce. So they're uh, attracted for many reasons to Ireland, and, and that's certainly the way it's panned out. Of course, there are other big multinationals, Uber, uh, Spotify, Amazon, PayPal. These are located in, in other EU countries, but certainly mm. uh, the uh, platforms located in Ireland uh, tend to gather the most attention. It, it is an awful lot of work, uh, you know, as we mark the anniversary of GDPR this week. 
uh, while there's certainly been lots of encouraging commentary in terms of what the GDPR in two years has delivered, there's equally, equally been criticisms, not just of my office, but in general of the GDPR, that it delivers too slowly in terms of enforcement and in terms of utilizing the sanctions that were provided to data protection authorities uh, under the GDPR. And of course, while we have made significant progress and we're pushing through some of those inquiries you mentioned now to the final stages, um, it, it, it is a lengthy process to investigate a multinational, uh, the legal analysis that's required in the absence of significant volumes of case law at this point. Mm. Uh, is always going to be long the first time round. I mean, already as we've put through uh, our first so-called draft decision to this Article 60 cooperation process, mm -hmm. we're obliged to consult with our fellow supervisory authorities uh, before finalising decisions. We've had mutterings that our draft decision is too long. Um, and uh, of course, the answer to that is that it has to be as long as it has to be. And, and in the absence of case law and established principles laid down by the courts, mm. uh, we go back to first principles analysis and we really lay out uh, the, the arguments that we're making to support uh, the findings and lay out that reasoning. So. Uh, in answer to your question, it's a lot of work. It's a long-term project for the GDPR to uh, deliver on, on what it needs to deliver on, but I think it, it is going to get there. As, as a data protection authority, we've significantly increased our budget and our staff. We have 140 staff now. We've increased the numbers of technologists and lawyers in particular, but um, when you have an obligation on top of conducting the inquiries, to handle every individual complaint from every mm. individual that con considers their data protection rights may have been infringed, that adds up to thousands and thousands of complaints that we're individually uh, examining and concluding on as well. Uh, aside from the work that we're trying to do around codes of conduct and right. binding corporate rules and all of the other tasks we have uh, under the GDPR. That makes you sound insanely busy, Helen. Um, <laughs> the, the, I, I'd like to set a little bit of context um, for all of that activity. And um, like, so let, let's sort of take a little bit of a step back and contextualize what the GDPR changed about, um, you know, the approach to children and data gathering when it, when it came in. Can you talk a little about that? Yes, of course. I mean, I think the most important thing to say about what the GDPR changed is that for the first time under EU law, it brought a recognition to the fact that children must be considered. It highlighted for the first time in its recitals, specifically recitals 38, 58 and 65, that children merit specific protections. Uh, and so this was absent completely in the predecessor law, the 1995 Data Protection Directive. And of course, in the US, the COPPA law has been there for, for several decades, but mm. uh, the EU was absent any specific law regulating the personal data of children. So in those other recitals, it, it calls out issues like transparency for children, because they may be less aware of the risks. And it also highlights the issue issues around the right to deletion, that, that children 
uh, have to be considered in particular when an organization is considering whether to uh, delete data at the request of, of what we call data subjects under the GDPR, because a child may have allowed data be processed, again, where they were less aware of the risks. So dotted then through the articles of the GDPR, specifically under Article 12, which deals with transparency, it calls out again that the transparency has to be considered specifically in the context of children. And then Article 17 on the right to deletion, uh, it specifically reminds controllers that children merit specific consideration. But having said that, despite the recitals laying down uh, some groundwork and then the specific articles dipping in and, and mentioning children, it doesn't go beyond that and it doesn't really give a full and comprehensive structure uh, or roadmap to controllers in terms of uh, how they will uh, implement specific safeguards for children, how they will contemplate the issue of when children can exercise their own rights under the GDPR. As you know, a key plank of the GDPR is the exercise of rights and the giving of control and empowering uh, of data subjects. And it doesn't really set out uh, when the child should independently be able to exercise those rights, uh, what role the parent and guardian should play and how the evolving capacities of children should be considered. And so, Really an eye-opener for the Interstate Protection Commission was a debate in Ireland when the national law to give further effect to the GDPR was being debated in our parliament. So I think you're aware, Dylan, that every mm -hmm. state had to implement a national law that gave further effect to the GDPR and implemented some of the choices it left to member states. Um, and in that context, in the Irish parliament, there was a very significant and heated amount of debate around Article 8 of the GDPR. And that's the article that deals with the so-called age of digital consent for children. And it sets down that where children are essentially accessing online services, unless they're over the age of 13, which countries had the choice to uh, up to 16, uh, then the parent must approve the child giving consent, the guardian must, must approve it. Um, and so because it left it as a choice for member states as to whether to set the age at 13, 14, 15 or 16 uh, for children and teenagers, there was a very, very significant amount of debate in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And I surprised us as a data protection authority uh, were, were the perspectives of, I suppose, charities that were particularly focused on the protection of children that argued strenuously for the lower age limit. So they said from age 13, the child should be able to autonomously deal on the internet and sign up to services. And of course, they were coming at it from the perspective of children that are vulnerable, perhaps subject to abuse or, or children discovered in challenging circumstances wanted to look up information, anything that would impede that they saw as a negative. And, and then we had cyber psychology experts uh, whose views I think ultimately prevailed, arguing very strenuously on the opposite end that it had to be age 16, that the parents must be involved in giving their approval right up to that point. So Ireland is one of the countries in the EU that implemented the age of 16 uh, in the end. But I suppose my point is that we really realized 
how complex this area is. There isn't necessarily consensus uh, even around that one debate about the age at which children should be able to independently access online services and that uh, even those who, who clearly do have the best interests of the child at the heart of their considerations disagree with how you deliver on the best interests of the child. And so what that told us as a data protection authority, uh, as we would set about trying to give effect to what the GDPR is seeking, that children merit and are given protections, it told us that we needed to consult widely on this area. But given that the GDPR didn't really set down any framework, we would have to frame the questions that we needed answers to, and we would have to consider very carefully mm. a range of stakeholder views and try to synthesize those views and try to come ultimately uh, to guide organizations in the best interests of the child. So it was the, with that in mind that the very end of 2018, we launched a consultation uh, with, with the range of questions, which all of the information is available on our dataprotection.ie website. If any of your listeners want to go back, there's interesting material there in terms of what we gathered. And we ran that consultation, as you know, in two streams. We ran one stream where we focused on adult inputs, where uh, big tech companies input, where uh, the teaching council, children's charities, and so on, a broad range of adult organizations input. And then we ran a special stream focused on gathering the views of children. Uh, and we rolled out a second stream schools uh, by developing lesson plans for teachers to gather the feedback of children. And that was important because having looked at the broader legal framework that governs the area of children and their rights, specifically the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, we realized that it's very important that children are given the right uh, under Article 12 of that convention to, to have their own say mm. on what impacts them. So um, in, in, in terms of the outcome of that consultation, um, it, it was again interesting to see that there isn't a whole heap of consensus around some of the granular areas of... Can you give, I suppose, some examples of, of what those results were? And, and I mean, were they, were they just different or were they actually conflicting? They, they were conflicting in some cases. So in, in, in terms of the adult stream, there was probably a relatively high degree of overlap in terms of the question around when children should be able to exercise their own rights. And largely, all of the stakeholders said children should be able to exercise their own rights at any age. And particularly as their capacities evolve, uh, even if they co-exercise them with their parents when they're younger, as their capacities evolve as teenagers, consideration should be given to eliminating the role of the parent as, as the teenager grows older. So all of that made sense. And while there were some limited variations, that was generally the gist of the approach. Um, there also seemed to be a high degree of consensus around the idea that age isn't a great proxy for looking at the capacities of any individual child uh, and whether they're ready to access certain types of services or exercise their own rights. But I suppose there isn't really an end to that debate because uh, probably 
some proxy or another, particularly when you deal with a law like the GDPR is necessary. Mm. Around that issue of age gating, uh, as to whether particularly in an online context, you try to implement technological solutions that will definitively identify who's a child uh, and what age a mm. uh, child is. There wasn't a huge amount of agreement about what the solutions to that could be. And I have to say that having conducted the consultation and looked at some of the ideas that were presented, the Data Protection Commission wouldn't be convinced that investing time in trying to force organizations down a route of implementing solutions for definitive age gating is going to yield anything. And I might talk a little more about that, but the area and probably the area where I see most concern arising, the big area where there was disagreement between the stakeholders is around this issue of targeted advertising at children. Uh, particularly when they're using online gaming and platforms and the manipulation of children as some stakeholders uh, saw it in, in terms of online advertising. So perhaps not surprisingly, the big tech respondents said, look, there's no prohibition in the GDPR on direct marketing to children um, and our services are based on uh, funded through, through advertising uh, and we don't think any kind of blanket suggestion that uh, advertising should be prohibited to children in all circumstances is reasonable. And pretty much all of the other stakeholders were on the side of, of a ban on direct advertising uh, to children. So um, that was interesting. And I think that to us is probably one of the, uh, the key areas that uh, we need to resolve in, in terms of protection of because we saw in that debate in the Irish Parliament around uh, the uh, age of digital consent was a real concern, in particular around issues like targeted advertising to children uh, by fast food outlets. Mm. One of the parliamentarians in Ireland wanted to implement an amendment to the Act in Ireland, mm. specifically prohibiting uh, targeted advertising uh, by fast food outlets. Uh, now, ultimately, the amendment wasn't carried, but there's a huge concern about this, this particular area. It sounds like there, there's a real sort of blurring of the lines about, I suppose, what's being discussed there, right? As you move from data privacy to advertising to how behavioral advertising works, um, which which clearly seems to be sort of complicating this this whole debate. I mean, I guess you've got. It sounds like a lot of the stakeholders have non technical views that they are bringing to the table. Um, so I mean, navigating all of this and, and and concluding some outcomes seems like quite an interesting challenge. I I, I think it is, and you've hit the nail on, on the head of of another complication in this area. A lot of the issues that stakeholders legitimately bring to the table and talk about really do go beyond data protection uh, into content moderation and broader issues of, of children's safety uh, online and how children uh, behave online. For example, the, there's a cyber psychologist in Ireland, Dr. Mary Aiken, who's very active in this area at, at looking at the impacts of technology on behaviour. 
Uh, and she has made the very stark point that there is evidence that children behave very differently in the uh, online world as compared to the offline world. So she says there's evidence, for example, if a child was walking home from school and an adult came towards them and said, pull up your skirt, show us your underwear, they would go straight home and tell their parent this had happened. They would report it. But when the same behavior happens online mm. and message something the equivalent the evidence is they don't to their parents mm. uh, and this points to the fact that when uh, you see advocates like like Beban Kidron saying we've got to make sure children are protected online in mm. the same ways we protect them offline uh, she clearly has has a very important point mm. uh, or she makes the point as well that in no other area of life uh, do we throw children to the wolves and treat them as adults as we do on the so-called open right. and democratic internet? Mm. So we have watersheds advertising and mainstream broadcasting. Mm. We have different levels of schooling for children reflecting their evolving capacities. We treat them differently if we're try putting them on trial as criminals if they've uh, committed an offence. We don't try that. So... Why, I suppose, is her argument, do we uh, continue to subject children to a, a, essentially an adult internet? So there are, there are important and complex things to work out there. Mm. But I suppose ask me questions specifically about behavioral advertising. And I suppose as data protection authorities, we do consider that does come uh, very much within our remit because, of course, uh, what's been used to target the ads is the personal data collected mm. from the child. Right. Right. Uh, and, and in particular, often their location data, to go back to that example of, mm. of targeting with fast food advertising uh, that concerns so many. I think other issues that are of particular concern that we will want to work through uh, in, in terms of concluding out this consultation, which we're going to do imminently publishing set of fundamental recommendations for right. all types of organizations but particularly platforms mm. I think the things we want to work out is this issue of nudge techniques and addiction mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and strays in some areas a little bit beyond data protection but for I, some... I was going to, i was going to say i mean that, that that sort of feels very much like the age-appropriate design code in the uk and I'm curious, do you get there? Do you get there in terms of thinking holistically about kids, or do you get there by thinking about sort of how data is being used, or both maybe? Or both. I think traditionally we would have gotten there in the context of adults by thinking about how data is used, because mm -hmm. the so-called dark patterns that mm -hmm. some of the consumer authorities have commissioned reports on are an issue even for adults online. Mm -hmm. so traditionally, we've come at it that way from a purely data processing perspective. But now that we are looking at children and realizing that when you start to look at children uh, and that legal framework governing, in particular, as I said, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, mm -hmm. you realize that you have to balance empowerment of the child with safeguarding mm -hmm. so nothing's going to be achieved if 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 what either the ico with their design code or what we achieve with the code of conduct right. we're going to encourage the platforms to draw up mm -hmm. nothing 
be achieved if the ultimate outcome is children are thrown off services right right platforms and unable to access them that that's not progress mm -hmm. so we want to we want to deliver the empowerment as well as the safeguards so when you can can you talk about then what what these results are going to look like when they come out i mean you, you say they're publishing them imminently so i suppose how should the ecosystem what should the ecosystem expect to see can can, can you talk to, to some detail on that yeah, so, so very shortly, we're going to publish a document which uh, will be uh, fundamentals in terms of uh, fundamental requirements in terms of the processing of children's data, mm -hmm. the handling of requests from children in terms of exercising of, of rights around their data. Document is going to set out, I think, helpfully that broader legal framework in which children have to be considered. It will delve into a little bit the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights based off of that, and look a little bit at the CJEU case law. It will then have a section that for all organisations will deal with that issue of when can children exercise their own rights, uh, and, and it will set down factors and criteria that organisations can consider in making decisions around that. We'll look at then when can children exercise those rights independently of their parents and it will again provide organizations with factors and criteria that they can consider and it will encourage them where they are looking at cases on a case-by-case -case basis to do exactly that it's not recommending or suggesting that there is a silver bullet one size fits all in this uh, there isn't, and, and perhaps, of course, that's where the challenges come in with the platforms who want to just one consistent press a button for everyone uh, and, and aren't capable of coping with, with those issues of different capacities and contexts in which uh, children operate. Then it will go on to deal with those thornier issues around uh, online advertising, uh, because it will be grounded similar to the ICO uh, approach to the design code in this concept of the best interests of the child dictating ultimately how uh, organizations behave. There are going to be other examples and in other contexts and on other platforms uh, where we will be leaning uh, in, in, in the opposite direction. Now again, when we publish the fundamentals, uh, which, which we'll be doing in the next couple of weeks, we are going to leave that document open to consultation for a couple of weeks. Um, because again, we want to hear all those counter views. We want to air out where uh, people think we're being too definitive, that we're uh, erring too much on the safeguards for children, forgetting about the empowerment and access side for children. Mm. And, and it's then once we've done that, we're going to start by bringing the big tech platforms based in Ireland that we know children use uh, to the table mm. uh, and start this process of encouraging a code of conduct. And, and from that code of conduct perspective, I mean, do you consider decisions that have been made in the US under COPPA, for example? Because again, I, like, I suppose just coming back to sort of the same broad principle around um, targeted advertising, I mean, under COPPA, um, contextual advertising that's not capturing any PII is permitted. And essentially, when you look at the, the, the COPPA YouTube decision last year, 
that essentially created the precedent for that environment. So, and, and I'm just curious, like how, like, so for companies, I mean, particularly the, the, the big tech companies that you mentioned, right? There's a practical implementation perspective to all of this in terms of creating solutions that safeguard kids, but can also be rolled out globally in, in, in some sort of sensible and practical way. How, I mean, again, it's, it's one of many things by the sounds of, of it that you have to take into your calculation. Yeah, of, of, of take that into account. And even if we weren't inclined to, as you say, the, the platforms are going to bring that to the table. Um, but we take it into account uh, from many different perspectives because um, one of the things we didn't get into talking about today, because it probably doesn't lend itself to a short podcast, are those thorny issues that I suppose arose in the FTC case uh, concerning YouTube, it, it, it is uh, those issues of uh, what are platforms used by children and specifically at children and what is content that is created just for children mm. uh, such that a platform can identify that as being used predominantly by children. Uh, those, those issues of, of age gating and how you definitively identify the audience um, requires still some working through. And then that issue that uh, possibly Article 8 of the GDPR borrowed from COPPA, that concept of children approving the consent of, uh, sorry, parents approving the consent of children when the child is under 16 uh, yeah. for the purposes of Irish law. We, we did see shortly after the GDPR came into application, one of the global tech platforms implemented effectively a COPPA style solution where they said, look, any children aged uh, 13, 14, 15 on our platform, uh, unless within a month's time you have come forward with a, a parent uh, quoting a credit card that we can take a micro payment from to give approval uh, remaining on the off. And, and of course, they got a hugely negative reaction from the parents uh, in, in the EU to that, who said, completely unreasonable, uh, our children and teenagers are coming up to exam time and, and you decide to implement this supposed safeguarding on their behalf. And uh, we consider collecting credit cards uh, to violate our rights to data minimization and to be a breach of our privacy. Mm. So Culturally, basically, it wasn't accepted in the EU, what has mentioned in the US, mm. uh, and the platform not unreasonably had to roll back on that. Mm. So those very um, technical and, as you said, pragmatic and logistical and operational issues for mm. platforms as well uh, have to be considered uh, in the mix. So I think our idea, we're very much leaning towards that idea that um, hard technology for age gating is, is, is likely to be an endeavor that's going to take us down a rabbit hole. And what we really need are that the platforms and services offer levels of protection. Everyone who comes on, adults or children, implement proper privacy by design, data minimization, much better transparency. And then that where they know, and it is the case for all of them, that they have significant volumes of child users, child and teenage users, mm. that they are a real choice, mm. an attractive 
uh, variant on the platform that uh, anyone under the age of 16 is going to want to choose. It will have the same features, uh, but it will provide specific safeguards, different levels of transparency and means of communicating information, uh, less harmful targeted advertising. Uh, and so on. So that's the concept that we're working towards. Mm. Um, Helen, I have two questions um, that I want to finish this off with, and I have no idea how long the answers are. <laughs> so the, the first one is like you're you're talking about sort of the codes of conduct um, that are that are going to be rolled out after this. How do you see the importance of fines in changing behavior? Um, you know, because again, you're, you're dealing with, with an incredibly diverse and complex mix of stakeholders across all of this. You know, fines, I suppose, have been getting larger in the US under COPPA. Um, how, how do you think about that, I suppose, as a tool with it, with, within the, the, the toolbox that you have? So the way in which we think about fines is that there's an obligation on us when we've conducted an investigation, we find an infringement, the GDPR puts an obligation on us as a data protection authority to consider the imposition of a fine. Right. So we've no choice about it. You asked me the question of how do they change behavior? That's a very different question. I will be obliged to consider fines, I will be imposing fines, but as to whether I consider fines and punitive fines deliver the change of behaviour you're contemplating, mm. well, that's not for me to say. The evidence in 40 years of competition law, globally and in the EU, I think, is that nothing really changes behaviour, uh, other than I've said recently, the jailing of directors where, where it's warranted. Right. So, I'm not giving any guarantee that that fines will change behavior, but what I am saying to you is it's my obligation to consider and ultimately to impose them. Mm. And that's, that's what will happen. But uh, there's not an awful lot of talk in the EU currently about a directive that came in in May 2018 alongside the GDPR. It's colloquially called the Law Enforcement Directive, and it's a very specific law mm. that personal data processing uh, by law enforcement authorities. Um, so each EU member state, when it uh, brought in a law to give further effect to the GDPR, would have transposed this directive alongside it. Typically, uh, that's how it would have been approached. So already under that law, um, my office has concluded several decisions. We've applied corrective measures because there are no fines under that law enforcement directive and we've supervised uh, the delivery against those corrective measures so so the um, investigations we've conducted and surveillance technologies by law enforcement authorities in some cases we forced them to turn off automatic number plate recognition cameras and so on and we've supervised them doing that that has changed behavior, that has changed outcomes, it didn't involve fines. So I, I suppose the long answer to your question is, um, it's not really for me to say whether fines will change behavior, I have an obligation to impose them. Mm. To me, what I can see is that here, reasonable corrective measures supervised and implemented them by the organization changes outcomes. 
that that seems to make logical sense. Right. You know, there's been a lot of discussion of the um, FTC settlement with Facebook and the historic five billion fine, um, which has to be significant. But you'll equally have heard the commentary. But sure, what does it change? Mm. Um, and uh, you know, I suppose uh, history will 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 tell us the answers. Well, speaking of history, let's take the opposite tack and look into the future. So to to wrap up this episode, which I think we we will need to do a sequel because there was so much interesting uh, material (laughs) that we touched on here. Um, What if you go forward in time five years, how do you think the landscape for kids digital privacy and kids digital protection looks both in Europe? and beyond? I think this is an area where we're going to see probably the most significant change. Um, A lot of people have uh, written circumstances off for all of us and adults and and say, look, we sleepwalked into uh, giving away all our data. It's probably too late for us. But what we have uh, gleaned as a data protection authority uh, through, as I said, the debates in our own parliament and in other parliaments around the EU, uh, when laws to give further effect to the GDPR were being enacted, what we have gleaned from the proactive contacting of our office by so many uh, different advocates and experts in the area of children is that this is an area where people are passionate and have huge concern uh, and want to deliver change and are going to demand and see change. You know, I've read articles suggesting that uh, as the likes of uh, the owners of big tech now are growing up and and in their 30s and 40s and starting to have children themselves, their own eyes are opening up uh, to these issues. And I think there probably is something in that. So I I think this is an area where we're going to see massive change. People care about it in a way that they are perhaps apathetic with regard to themselves online. They care about what happens to their children. They're seeing the effects on their children. Even if, as as you and I said earlier, it's hard to parse out what's a data protection issue from a child safety content moderation issue, there are issues there. matter how they're bundled um, that are concerning people and don't think the status quo can and will prevail. Very interesting. Well, Helen Dixon, Data Protection Commissioner for Ireland, thank you very much for joining Kid Tech today. Thanks, it's been a pleasure.